Hello, Fellowship. I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the elder board, as four of our current elders will be completing their terms of service next summer. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of fellowship. We are not a church with elders, we are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Fellowship family. And welcome. If you're new, thank you for worshiping with us today. We'd love to connect with you. You can fill out a QR code connect sheet online through accessing this uh, QR code that will come up here on the, on the screen shortly. But even better, we'd love to connect with you in person out in the center booth in the foyer. Hey, today is the final day to turn in your Operation Christmas Child boxes. And with that, I actually have a confession that this morning my boxes are still by my front door. So if you're like me and you left your boxes, there's still time to run home today, go pick them up, and then drop them off here uh, hey, today we're going to wrap up our study in the book of Ephesians, and it has been a rich time working through this book in our small groups and here on Sunday mornings, and that's going to lead us into our first Advent service next week. And across the hall in the Family Center, we're going to have a family Advent worship service at both the 9 o'clock and 10.30 hours. And with that, there's a reminder that there will be no elementary or student ministry services next week. So plan to bring your children to the Advent family service next week. Well, hey, this morning, we want to fix our eyes on the Lord and begin our time together uh, with a call to worship from Psalms. So would you stand with me as I read this call to worship this morning? Psalm 34, 1 through 8. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will be on my lips always. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Amen. Let's sing of his goodness together today. Come thou fount of every blessing. We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so let's praise him together. We sing. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart's 
from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt so lift us up together praise the father Stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had Would conquered you stand, death. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Fellowship, have you noticed that it doesn't seem to come naturally to have a heart of gratitude, a posture of thanksgiving? For me, I find it much more natural to complain, to compare, and to even question God's goodness. And as, as a father, I actually get to observe this in my children at the dinner table pretty, pretty regularly. In fact, two nights ago, we were serving baked asparagus, public enemy number one in our home for my children. Right away, my kiddos, they start complaining. Ah, not again. And then they start comparing. They're like, you gave him less than me. And they're actually like measuring each little piece of asparagus. They get out the, the rulers. And then, and then the part that hurts if I get on the roller coaster with them, they start questioning my heart for them. I had a different episode of, over broccoli. One of my sons said, literally, Dad, you're ruining my life. He actually, he actually said that. Um, you know, as, as funny as an example as that is, if we take a step back, we can identify with this, right? There are very real circumstances, painful circumstances in our life we encounter that produce the same response in us towards God. And so this, this charge from the Apostle Paul who was a man well acquainted with suffering, with pain. He didn't say this in a trite and trivial way when he says this. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our gratitude and our heart of thanksgiving is not rooted in our circumstances. Rather, it's rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we focus on the immeasurable riches that we have in him. And that allows us to be fully present in our circumstances with joy and in sorrow. And so this morning, we actually get to hear from a few folks in our body about how God has remained faithful in and through it all. And it's gonna start with a global outreach. Thank you for supporting our family and our call. Teshekulad. Teshekulad. 
Well, praise God. Amen. Hey, you can give the Lord a round of applause for how he's provided for this family. They get to remain in the country and be the hands and feet of Christ at a place that needs his witness and presence there. Hey, next we're going to hear from Al and Patty Campbell. They're going to share just briefly about how God has remained faithful in their lives. with people and to serve again. So we made a list. We put Fellowship Bible at the top of the list. And then we had several other smaller churches that we put on our list because Al and I are small church people, or so we thought. So our first time here, we came into the foyer and we were met with the sound of happiness. Happy people enjoying fellowship. We came in, the worship was wonderful, the teaching time was wonderful. So the next week, instead of going to the next church on the list, we said, let's go back to fellowship one more time. Well, the rest is history. We didn't visit anyone else on our list. Now you might say, how did you know without visiting any other churches that this was the place for you? Well, the two things that stand out to us most is one, the uh, Discover class, and two was our small groups. In the Discover class, we learned about the mission statement for this church, the beliefs. We were given the opportunity to share our own spiritual story about how we were born again and came to Christ, our living hope, through God the Father. And we were also able to discover the different serving opportunities available here at the church and in our community. Our small group, though, was the place that began to feel like home. Our small group was where acquaintances became friendships, and friendships feel like family, where we can share our lives with each other week by week. So at this time of year, this Thanksgiving time, Al and I, are so grateful and thankful for the gospel message of Jesus Christ that goes out from this church to our community and to the world. We're so thankful for the friendships we've made this year. We're thankful for the serving opportunities that we've had to share with you all. And we're so thankful for each and every one of you here at Fellowship Bible Church. Thank you, Alan, Patty. Thank you. And thank you for diving in, serving the church and community. They're regular, regularly serving in the prayer room and on communion team. Thank you, guys. It's good to, good to have you here. Next, we're going to hear from Sherry Grace. Uh, Sherry and uh, Whitney are going to team up and partner as she translates. Hello. Good morning. So good to be here. My name is Sherry Grace. And I'm part of the deaf ministry here at Fellowship. Growing up, I went to church with my family and my mom did her best to interpret for me all through my growing up years. And I always asked for interpreter, but they never provided for me. I finally found a church with an interpreter, but I never felt at home. And I asked the Lord, please send me somewhere somewhere where I feel at home, that it's my church family. Yes, that church in Springdale provides interpretation, but I didn't feel at home. But when I researched and I found here at Fellowship, it's so wonderful. They provide interpretation. They feel like my church family and it's very warm and welcoming here. Also, an interpreter is provided for my deaf daughter as well. So that's what I'm thankful for. Praise God. Thank you, Sherry. We're so glad to have you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray continually. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Church, would you stand with us as we continue to worship and give thanks through song this morning? Well, now we have the opportunity to sing a song that has been a tradition around here, Thanksgiving. And I grew up singing this song, my dad being a worship pastor. And so every time I hear it, there's a part of me that's like, man, this is an old song. Why are we still singing this? But every time I start singing it, I remember God's faithfulness through different scenes in my life. And so would you join with us? Let's sing, give thanks with a grateful heart this morning. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given give thanks to you, the one who fulfills the desires of our heart, the only one who can satisfy. And so may we reflect on your faithfulness. And as we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, and as we get to the end this morning, God, would you teach us to walk by your spirit, leaning on you as our daily bread, as our very present help. So we come and approach your word with humility today and gratitude for who you are and what you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, as you take a seat, a lot of us probably remember the story of David and Goliath, whether that be from Sunday school when you're growing up, maybe you've been reading your Bible or just living in North America in the United States, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. And there's something that happens in that story that's a little interesting to me. You see, David, this child, this shepherd boy, decides that he's going to go out and he's going to fight Goliath, a giant. And so David goes to the king, to Saul, and he says, hey, I'm your guy. Look, I know I'm willing to do what you're unwilling to do, but send me in. And somehow Saul is just going, yeah, this is it. Let's send the kid in. And so they begin to have this dialogue and, and David and Saul are talking. They've decided that David will be the one to fight Goliath. And so the king decides to do something. He gives David his armor. And you can picture this shepherd boy taking the helmet from the king. He puts it on. He places his tunic on him. And it's a little clunky. It doesn't really work. And David begins to walk around. He's trying it out. And he goes, this is just, this is too big. It doesn't fit me. It's not right. And David actually takes off the armor and it, he hands it back to Saul. And I think in that moment, David knew something that the king didn't. In fact, David probably knew something in that moment that the most of the people of Israel didn't know. You see, David knew that he didn't need an earthly king's protection, but that he needed a heavenly king's protection. That he wasn't actually in search of, of earthly armor, but of spiritual armor, because David, unlike everyone else, actually knew that he was involved not just in an earthly battle, but in a spiritual battle. 
And you see, that's exactly what we're talking about today in Ephesians chapter six, the spiritual battle that Paul begins to describe that all believers are experiencing. You see, at the close of his letter to the believers in Ephesus, Paul begins to describe a battle that's taking place that he says all believers are in. And in the midst of this closing section, Paul is gonna urge his fellow believers to stand firm, to be strengthened by the Lord so that they can actually resist the schemes of the devil. He's gonna ask that they put on a certain helmet, that they take up a belt called truth, that they actually carry the sword of the spirit. You see, in the closing remarks that he gives to the people in Ephesus, Paul is gonna actually tell them what it means to stand firm and how to stand firm. Ultimately, Paul says that to stand firm in your faith, you have to put on the armor of God. And so what I want us to do today is actually look at what is the armor of God? That's duty number one. We're gonna figure out what the armor of God is. The second duty that we have is we're gonna figure out what it means to put it on. Because Paul is gonna repeat himself over and over, put on the whole armor of God. We need to figure out what that means. So if you want, go ahead, open up your Bibles, chapter six of Ephesians. If you got the Ephesian booklet, turn towards the end, because we're in week 12 of 12, so it's back there somewhere. Go ahead and find it. But we're gonna jump right in to chapter six, verses 10 and 11. And here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And as we get ready to jump into these closing remarks from Paul, it would be good to remember that one of the big themes that, that Paul is expressing throughout this letter is the superiority of Christ over everything and everyone. And not just the superiority of Christ, but the superiority of the strength of God himself. And we see that show up in these verses as well. If you want, go ahead and circle the strength of his might in your Bible or in your booklet and right next to it, write chapter one, verses 19 and 20. Because those are the same words that we see at the beginning of the letter that talk about the strength of God being the very thing that raised Jesus to new life. And in chapter two, it shows up and it's the strength of God that overcomes uh, evil. And in chapter three, it comes up and it's the strength of God that dwells richly inside us. And the same is true here at the end of the letter, that it's the strength of God that enables us as believers to walk. You see, this whole book has been about one person. And let me give you a hint. It's not us. The whole book has been about Jesus, his power, his might, his strength as God. And it's no different here. At the very closing remarks, Paul wants it to be abundantly clear that to be strong in this world requires the strength of Jesus. And so he says, be strong in the Lord. But, but what's really interesting to me is that in the Greek, it's actually passive there. And so it says, be made strong in the Lord, which only furthers the idea that Paul is getting at, that this isn't even our battle, it's Jesus's that he's the one who finds the ultimate victory. He's the one who fights on our behalf. Our job isn't to go and be strong ourselves, but to cling to the one who has the superior strength. And so it says, be made strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And we do that how? Well, we do it by putting on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to resist and stand against the schemes of the devil Paul is up front with who this spiritual battle is against and he says it's against the devil and his schemes. He furthers that idea in the next verse where he says, hey, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the reason that we put on the armor of God is so that we can stand firm. And the reason that we have to stand firm is because just as Paul clearly says, there actually is a battle that takes place. And as he writes who that battle is against, it's almost like a crescendo, if you could picture that in words. He starts with rulers, he goes to authorities, and then it's these cosmic powers all the way to the spiritual forces. And I think what Paul's doing when he writes that way is he's giving us a clue into his purpose. We don't necessarily need to know what each individual part of this group means. I'm not, I'm not so concerned with figuring out who are the evil rulers, who are the evil authorities, what are the cosmic powers, but I think because he writes in a crescendo, what he's doing is he's emphasizing that this battle is against the devil and the schemes of evil. That's it. 
It's this grandiose way of saying, we don't wrestle here with earthly powers, but with spiritual powers. You don't need earthly protection. You need the protection of the true king, and that's Jesus. He writes it, constantly getting bigger, constantly emphasizing that the battle is real. And I actually think, you know, this isn't the, yeah, this isn't even the purpose of this sermon, but we're gonna go here for a second. I think these verses are, are difficult for us, especially in our North American, our Western thinking, our naturalistic, scientific, maybe postmodernistic worldview to actually understand what Paul is saying. Because he says three things that we need, to be, we need to understand pretty clearly. The first he says is that evil is real. And he's not ashamed of that. But the world that we live in doesn't want to accept the reality that evil actually does play a part in this fallen world. And I'm not saying every natural disaster happens because a demon inspired it. But I am saying that there are bad things that we experience in the fallen world because the fallenness of evil is prevailing and is working. We need to be aware of that. The second thing that he says is also that evil is contrary to the way of God. Throughout Ephesians, it's been talking about Jesus and the movement of redemption that he's on, that he's bringing dead people to life and he's taking the creation that had turned away and bringing it back to him until the ultimate uh, uh, consummation of that redemption at the second coming. And yet Paul says there's something that stands contrary to that and that's evil in opposition to the followers of Jesus in the movement of redemption. And that's the spiritual forces of evil. And our world doesn't want to accept that either. If anything, if we're, if we're even willing to accept that evil is a reality, we want it to be this almost innocent, platonic idea. Well, it's not really bad. Good and evil aren't opposing. It's just a different way of viewing the world. And we want to downplay what evil is. And then the third thing, as I look at these verses that I think Paul's saying is he's saying that evil is actually powerful, that there legitimately is a power that does exist. And we know that is true because Paul is adamant about it so much so that he says we need to put on the armor of God to be able to stand against it. What does Paul say in verse 12? Well, he says that evil's real. He says it's contrary to the way of God. And he says it's actually powerful, so much so that this is who the battle's against. And because the battle is real, contrary to God and powerful, you need to put on the armor of God. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. And having done all, stand firm. Paul just begins to repeat himself. He loves to do that over and over. And we get why. We know what repetition does. I mean, why do you repeat yourself to your children? Wives, why do you repeat yourself to your husband? Because what you have to say is important to you and should be to them is what I meant to say. It's, it's all, what you say is really important, okay? And so you're repeating yourself. But we understand that repetition actually emphasizes and Paul isn't afraid to use that repetition to let us know if we're to stand firm, then we have to take up the whole armor of God. But then my question becomes, uh, as I'm reading through these, is do we have an example of someone who stands firm? What would it mean to stand firm? Who, who can I look to to give me that inspiration? And I, I think we do, and it's the Sunday school answer. The example that we have is Jesus. You see, Jesus, early on in his ministry, after he's baptized, it says that he's led into the wilderness to be tempted, and he fasts for an unbelievably long amount of time. And, and here's something that I think is important. We as, as Bible-believing followers of Jesus, Christians, uh, believe in the hypostatic union, the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. This one plus one equals one. It's bad math. It's great theology, but that's what we believe in, a, a God who is fully God, fully man. And I think in this moment of his temptation, we need to resonate a little bit with his humanity because he, he says he fasts. And he's alone. And right after that, it says, and he was hungry. I resonate with that. Because I think when it talks about Jesus being hungry, I think it's pointing out the feeling of weakness. I mean, I miss a meal and I'm weak. Jesus has been fasting and alone for how long? And it's in that moment of weakness that it says Satan approaches and, and, and shows up and begins to tempt him. And what does Jesus do in those moments of temptation in that moment of experiencing the weakness, he leans in not on his own strength, but on the strength of the Father. 
And then, and then Satan continues to berate him. And what does Jesus do? Well, he leans in to scripture, into the word of God, and he grounds himself in biblical truth. What does Jesus do in his moment of weakness and temptation? He stands firm. You see, Jesus is able to stand firm because I believe he has the armor of God on. And the reason that Jesus has the armor of God is because he is God, it's his armor. And it, it kind of brings us back to this idea of Saul and David. David didn't need his earthly king's protection, but his heavenly king's. He didn't need an earthly armor, but a spiritual armor. And in fact, that's what all believers need. And Paul's adamant about that in his call. Put on the armor of God because that's what you're in desperate need of. And Paul's not worried uh, about this armor fitting us or not. It's not like David wearing Saul's. It's not gonna be clunky. It's not too big. Because hear me out, the armor of God is the spirit of God working on our behalf. For a believer, the armor of God is far less about going out and finding something strong that we can hold on to or that we can put ourselves into. And the armor of God is going out and finding Jesus and letting him dwell richly inside of us. That's Ephesians 3.17. That's let Christ dwell richly in your heart. The armor of God isn't about us doing something, but it's about the Lord working on our behalf because this is about his strength, not ours. He's won the battle. We get to cling to him. And it's in light of that that Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. So let's jump into that. What is this armor of God that we keep mentioning? And here's what I want us to do. We're gonna understand what it is, but remember, we're also gonna look at what it means to put it on. And so I'm just gonna give it to you right here on the slide. I think putting on the armor of God is a two-step process. Each piece of the armor is a virtue that needs to be practiced. And so that is one step in the process. And each piece of the armor is also a gift that needs to be accepted. And for us as followers of Christ, to put on the armor of God means that we will both accept the gifts of Jesus and practice the virtues of Jesus. So let's, uh, let's jump in and let's take a look at this armor of God. It says in 14, stand therefore, repetitive Paul, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is this belt of truth? Well, I think it, it honestly should be viewed as maybe the foundation of, of Paul's metaphor. Remember, as he's writing this letter, he's imprisoned. He, he's in captivity. He even says, I'm an ambassador in chains. And, and so you can almost picture Paul sitting there as he's writing his letter and he's looking up and he sees a Roman soldier standing guard before him. And as he's writing this call to close his letter to the Ephesian believers, he says, put on the armor of God as he looks at this Roman soldier and put on the, the belt of truth. Because as he looks at the Roman soldier, he's realizing that everything that a Roman guard would have worn was held together by their belt. It was the foundation of their protection. And not only did it hold everything together, but specifically, it's what held the sword on the Roman soldier. And later on, we're going to see Paul call the sword in his metaphor, the word of God, there's a link for Paul between what is true and what is the word of God. The truth is the correct narrative of this world as we see it through scripture. The truth for Paul is the reality of this world as known by our creator and expressed to us. That there actually is someone who made us that loves us, that cares for us, that this place isn't how it's supposed to be, but that God didn't give up on us. He came back for us. He made a way for us, and he wants to spend eternity with us. That is what the truth is for Paul. Well, then what would that look like for us to put on the belt of truth? Well, first, we would have to accept the gift. We'd have to accept the gift that God has actually given us truth, and to accept that truth would mean to know it, to envelop ourselves in it, to explore it, to recognize that there is an objectivity. I mean, truth is a loose word in today's world, but what God has given us is in truth is a sturdy rock to stand on in the midst of a shaky climate. And we don't just accept the truth, but we also practice the virtue of truth. We get to tell it, we get to sing it, we get to know it, we get to ingrain it within ourselves. We get to become truth tellers. But you see, sometimes when we talk about being truth tellers, I think our mind immediately goes to evangelism. We're going out and evangelizing, and hear me out, that is great. I'm not saying that's wrong, but 
But what is Paul's call in this section? Is it to go out and conquer? No, it is to stand firm. And so what would it look like to be a truth teller in this sense? What would it mean to be a truth teller in the sense of standing firm? I actually think it means that we begin to tell truth to one another. That we actually get to, just like Ephesians says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs over one another. And the way that we tell the truth to each other practically each and every week is by showing up here. And hear me out, not just showing up here, but what do we do every week? We sing. And when we sing, what do we sing? We sing the truth of God as found within the truth of God to God. We sing the scriptures unto the Lord and over each other. Singing is a beautiful act of worship because, yes, we're worshiping Jesus, but there's another aspect that we miss. When we sing out loud, we're actually telling the truth to each other. As I sit here and listen to your voices, I'm reminded that someone else believes what I believe. And as I come in on a hard day and in a moment of doubt and I hear someone singing about their trust in the Lord, I'm reminded that I can trust the Lord. It's a corporate gift and a corporate practice. I mean, there's a reason we didn't build this place with little cubicles for you all to walk in and to sing as loud as you can in so nobody hears you. Because we want you to hear each other and you need to hear each other. But we get scared of that. And we start thinking, well, what if this person thinks I don't sound good? What if I sound like this? Who cares what you sound like? Actually, Papa, I know who cares what you sound like and his name is Jesus and he loves the sound of your voice. And so sing unto him, tell that truth about him and tell it to the people next to you. Let them hear your voice because in doing so, you enable yourself to stand firm and you help them practice standing firm. Be a truth teller to the body of Christ. Do so through singing with joy, remembering that Jesus has given us a gift of truth. And then after fastening the belt of truth, it says that we should put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness is this, what is it? It's something that's morally right. It's, it's justifiable, it's free from sin theologically, or it's distance from wrongdoing. And so what would that mean then to put it on? Well, just like the others, it means that we would accept the gift of righteousness, the undeserved and yet beautiful gift that God has given us, righteousness, that we are free from our sins. We're no longer slaves to them. We are distanced from our wrongdoings as far as the east is from the west. We're no longer known by them but a beautiful gift that God has given us. We're known as righteous, seen and known through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, not by our mishaps, mistakes, and sin. God doesn't look at us and see a sinner, but a saint because he sees his son and his son's blood. And let me tell you, a righteous identity in a fallen world where evil loves to speak its native tongue of shame to us, a righteous identity is a sturdy rock to stand on. That's a gift. Accept it. But don't just accept the gift of righteousness that God gives. Practice the, the virtue of righteousness. Do what is right. Seek justice. Be fair. Don't show favoritism. Pursue what is pure. Flee from what is evil. Run to the holy. Dispatch from the disgraceable. Seek what is good. But you know, to pursue righteousness, I think it requires self-discipline, and accountability. And I had a mentor growing up who would always say, a, a, a lack of self-discipline never makes up for a lack of accountability, and a lack of accountability never makes up for self-discipline. You've got to have both. Who's holding you accountable to flee from evil and run to what's good? And how are you disciplining yourself to do that? After the breastplate of righteousness, it says, for shoes for your feet, Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And this one I think becomes a little more confusing to us because it's a little wordy, but it's simple. Hear me out. What is the gospel of peace? It's the gospel. It's the fact that there's a God who created, humanity that turned, and so that God came back in the form of Jesus. He lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserve, rose to new life that we might rise with him. That is the gospel. Creation, fall, life, death, life. And so we believe in that gospel, which leads to peace. So, so what is this readiness then? And I think, again, the Roman soldier can give us some understanding, the metaphor that Paul uses. You see, a Roman soldier, uh, its shoes would have had a spike in the front of it. 
And typically we call shoes with spikes what? Cleats. And what do cleats let you do? They let you run faster. Maybe not jump higher, but be more agile on on turf or whatever you wear a cleat on. Uh, But remember, Paul's section here isn't about being more agile, going out and conquering. What is his section for? Standing firm. And that's exactly what a Roman soldier's spike in its shoe was built for. It wasn't for being faster. It was actually for being sturdier. To be able to stand their ground as their shields were hit with the onslaught of the enemy. It enabled them to be sturdy. And so I think when we hear readiness, think sturdiness as well. Be sturdy for your shoes. That comes from the gospel of peace. How does that work? There's actually peace in knowing that there is salvation. And that peace enables me to be sturdy and be ready to share it with others. So how do we, how do we look at this verbal and this mindful readiness in the midst of a culture of confusion and lies? How do we, how do we put that on? I think the first is we accept the gift of the gospel, that we actually know it, we listen to it, we let it breathe life into us. And just as scriptures say, we confess with our mouth, we believe in our hearts and we trust Jesus as our savior and follow him as our Lord. Accept the gift of the gospel of peace. And then practice being ready, practice being sturdy. Do so by studying the truth in the smooth times so that when rough, rough times arise, you, you know what you believe. Practice being ready by actually exploring the truth of your faith. Ask questions. Take classes. Read books. If you're looking for a book to read to give you like some explanation of your faith, I got 66 ideas for you to start with. There's no wrong way to read your Bible but not to read it. Explore it, ready yourself, share your faith with your kids. They need to hear it from you and if you can share your faith with your kids when your neighbor shows up in your door and asks you what you believe, you're ready. You can tell them. And after you put on the shoes of readiness from the gospel of peace, it says in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What's the shield of faith? Well, it's a, faith is a trust in, it's a confidence in who God is and maybe even, no, indefinitely in what he says he'll do and what he does. But if we're not careful, I think we can miss something here that maybe the believers in Ephesus would have picked up on because we view a shield as a tool for an individual. We think of a shield as maybe a tool used for one person uh, to go out and do their job, but in the Greco-Roman world in, under the Roman guard, that wouldn't have been the idea. You see, Roman uh, soldiers would have been trained in a technique, and there's no intimidating way to say it. The technique was called the tortoise, um, which is bizarre to me because it's like, let's come up with a better war cry than, hey, tortoise formation, let's go, boys. But that's what they would do. They would actually form this turtle shell with their shields because their shields weren't just for themselves, but they were for everyone around them. And so they would use their shield to help them in front of themselves and the person to their right and to their left and above them. And all of a sudden, this shield formation would take place, enveloping them, forming a a, a turtle shell around them. And they would actually use that formation as they would go towards an enemy's gate. And they would use it because typically when they're approaching an enemy's gate, what would be raining down on them? Arrows. And oftentimes those arrows at that time were dipped in a pitch that was lit on fire. And so the Roman soldiers whose shields on the outside were covered in leather would be uh, just drenched in water. So that way when the pitch came off of the arrow and landed on the shield, it wouldn't catch the shield on fire, but could be extinguished. It kind of sounds like what Paul is talking about. And yet he doesn't call his shield, or he says that his shield is faith. We gotta understand that faith is a communal practice. It is a communal thing. It's a corporate practice. How do we put on the shield of faith? Well, first we accept the gift. The gift that God has given us in the ability to know him. That an infinite God has written himself into a finite world. And that we as microscopic beings compared to him, actually by his grace have the ability to be in relationship with him. And we can actually not just be in relationship with him, but we can trust him because despite him and his just amazing, magnificent marvelousness actually cares about us. Accept the gift that God is able to be known because he graciously wants to be known. 
And don't just accept the gift, but also practice. You see, like most spiritual things, I think that faith is a muscle, a muscle that you can strengthen and that can get stronger. And so practice being faithful in the small because it enables you to be faithful in the big. Practice being faithful in what we might consider easy or childlike because in the hardship, you're, you're trained to respond in faith. My question for you would be, maybe how, how do you display your faith? Like, have you ever thought about that? How do you display your faith? And here's what I've noticed with believers. There's typically a pattern. When we answer that question, how we display our faith, we love to talk about what we don't do. I display my faith because I don't do X. I I display my faith because I don't do Y. We love to think about displaying our faith through a component of abstinence. And that's that's a part of it. But let me make it harder. How do you display your faith by what you engage in? How do the people sitting next to you know that you have faith in a risen king by what you do, not by what you don't do? And if we can't think of something, then maybe we do need to start picking up the shield of faith a little bit more. After the shield of faith, he then says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here's what I'll point out about these last two. The prior four, they're both gifts and virtues. These last two are just gifts to be received, gifts to be accepted from a gift-giving God. Salvation, what is it? Well, I mean, Ephesians 2 said it really clear. Salvation is the reality that we were dead in our trespasses, and dead can't help itself, but the living can help the dead. And so salvation is the fact that the living God breathed life into us as the dead ones and we get to walk with him now and into eternity. Accept the gift of salvation and realize that it has current and future implications. It brings peace to your life currently that you have someone who walks with you, is with you, that the hardship of this world aren't everlasting. Look to the future and know that your future salvation is the hope for you as a believer. And remember what Nick Rowland said, hope isn't what we wish for, it's what we wait for. Salvation is a beautiful gift that God has given his people that we're protected, we're secured, and we're gonna walk into eternity with the living God. If you're in here and you, you haven't ever accepted the, the gift of salvation, don't leave before talking to somebody. If you showed up today and you're like, man, why am I here? Why am I listening to this guy? It's not coincidence, come find us. If you're at a crossroads in your life, don't walk out of here wondering what that is. Find somebody in the back. Find somebody in the worship team. Find somebody next to you. That's not weird, come find me. But just don't leave before you find out what the helmet of salvation is and the gift that God has offered you. And then we accept the sword of the spirit which Paul says is the word of God. It's the scriptures. It's what we have in our canon. And most people think of the word of God as the offensive tool that we have. It's what you use to go out and conquer. And and I'm not saying that's wrong. But remember, Paul isn't talking about going out on a conquest. He's talking about being faithful as the battle comes to us. And so I, where the sword of the spirit is a tool of offense, it's also defensive, that we're founded in the truth, that we know the word of God. And just as Jesus used it, not hunting Satan, but as Satan came to him and in the wilderness, he leaned in on scripture, we too accept the gift by leaning in on scripture. Study it, know it, search it out, seek it out. I mean, I love, I wake up in the morning and my wife is sitting in the kitchen reading her Bible and she's read it a million times. But what is she doing? She's accepting the gift that God has given her in the word of God. And it's after this section of talking through the pieces of the armor, Paul says also pray at all times in the spirit with a prayer of supplication. Keep alert, persevere, give supplication for the saints and for me. And you know, there are some people who actually wanna include prayer as one of the pieces of the armor. And, and to be honest, grammatically, you can make a pretty good case for it. But then at the same time, there are other people who go, well, it, it doesn't have a metaphor. He doesn't call it the, maybe the wristbands of prayer. Or he, it's not a part of that metaphoric statement. 
I'm not so concerned if it's part of it or not. What I do see abundantly clear is that Paul is saying prayer is necessary. To stand firm, you have to put on the armor of God and you need to pray. And just as the armor of God is the strength of God working in us, so too do we pray through the strength of God. It's not about how we do it or who we are that is doing it, but it's about who's listening. And the beauty is that we have the spirit of God bringing our request to God himself. Paul says, pray for him and for all the saints. As he closes his letter to the Ephesians, what is Paul saying outright, really simple? He says, if you wanna stand firm in your faith, then you need to accept the gifts of Jesus and you need to practice the virtues of Jesus. If you wanna stand firm in your faith in the midst of this spiritual battle, You don't just need earthly protection. You actually need spiritual protection. And that spiritual protection that he calls the armor of God or the gifts that God has given us, and it's the virtues that Jesus demonstrated for us. Practice them and accept them. And what if this was our church? Ask yourself that question. What if this is who fellowship was? People who accepted the gifts of Christ and practice the virtues of Christ. What would that look like in your life? What would it look like for this community? And what would it do for this world? Hey, we're gonna take communion here in a little bit, and the ushers will pass out the element. Communion is a practice that we don't take lightheartedly. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, if you have professed faith in Christ, then we encourage you to take the elements, but don't take them alone, they're double cupped. You got the cracker, you got the juice. It's both there. Just twist and pull it up. But hold on to those for a second because we want to take them corporately. Just as the shield of faith is a corporate practice, so too do we remember the death and resurrection of our Savior together.
Church, would you stand with me, please? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. same manner he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant of my blood which was poured out for you take and drink church our thanksgiving our hearts of gratitude are anchored they're rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ And so this week, as we celebrate, and every day, may we remember, because of Jesus, we can live lives of thanksgiving. Hey, I do need to correct a bit of uh, bad intel that I gave you earlier, and that's about the family Advent service. It is not across the hall next week. It is actually in the Student Center West. I hope you all can make it there with your families next week. Go in peace, fellowship, family, to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.